You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, pastor of New Hope Chapel. Thanks so much for listening. Today you'll be hearing from Steve and Julie Coleman, members of our teaching team, as they present our sermon series on Habakkuk. Well, welcome to the third and final message in our series on Habakkuk. I'm Steve Coleman, a member of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel. And once again, Julie Coleman, who's also a member of the teaching team, and I will be teaching this together. We've traveled quite a distance here uh, with Habakkuk as he wrestles with God. Uh, We've gone through in the last two weeks, chapters 1 and 2. So let's do a quick review. In chapter 1, we discussed the concern Habakkuk had about Israel. He was worried that God was tolerating this evil in Israel, wanted Israel, God, to bring judgment so that Israel would come back to him, represented by the uh, box on the top that says Habakkuk has questions and problems. So he goes to God, does the right thing, responds correctly, engages with God, and asks these honest questions. God comes back with an answer. He says, Sure, I have already prepared the Babylonians. They're going to come and invade Israel. Well, this is floors, this floors Habakkuk. It's not the answer he was expecting and creates a bigger dilemma for him. How can God take a nation more unrighteous than Israel to attack Israel? But he does it again. He stays engaged. He seeks God. And then... In chapter 2, last week, God responded by revealing more about himself and what is in store for the Babylonians, giving Habakkuk the bigger picture. This is what God does. When we seek, he reveals himself. He delights in revealing himself to us. We've probably all had those experiences of having a problem, going to the Lord, not knowing what's going to happen, and then... Certainly, as we look back on it later, we see, boy, that really pushed my faith a little farther. He stays engaged with God, and God reveals himself. God ends chapter 2 by saying, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And as we said last week, we never overestimate God's character. What God's saying in that is, I am the Holy One. I am in my temple. And, and those on the earth don't really have the frame of reference or even the vocabulary to enter into a discussion with me. He's a, a wholly different nature. Everything we imagine or think about him is going to be inadequate. He's bigger and better in reality. God is holy, God's just, God's sovereign, and he's beyond our understanding. So now we turn to chapter 3, and we're going to learn about Habakkuk's response to God. So Habakkuk is armed with information that God gave him in uh, in chapter 2, and we're going to read now what his response was to that new information. But before we even start God's word, let's ask him for help. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth it contains. We thank you for the guidance it gives. We thank you for how it reveals you to us. And we just ask, God, that your Holy Spirit would be active in each of us, 
uh, guiding us to truth, teaching us, and helping us to be convicted so that what we do today in this room would be transforming. And we know that we depend on you for that transformation. So we just ask your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we start in, in uh, Habakkuk chapter 3. If you have your Bibles and want to open to it, it would be a great idea. Habakkuk is one of those minor prophets at the end um, of the Old Testament. So if you hit Matthew, go back a few prophets and you'll find Habakkuk. My husband can recite them backwards. I can't, sorry. But anyway, we're going to start with verse 2. And this is what Habakkuk says in response to what God has revealed about himself. He says, Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. Lord, revive your work in the midst of years. In the midst of years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. He says, I've heard. I got it, God. I heard what you just said. God gave him a vision. God showed him the future. Now, a lot of us like would think that maybe we would like to know the future. I remember when I was in college, especially my senior year, and I wasn't engaged. And so, of course, when you're a senior and you're not engaged, that's a problem for girls. And so anyway, I wondered, what, you know, am I going to get married? Will there be somebody that will, like, want me? <laughs> will I have children? Will I get a teaching job? When I was graduated, there were no teaching jobs, and that's what I was majoring in. And I wished I could just see into the future. But now that I'm older, not that old, but older, um, I know better. I don't want to see the future. Because while if I look ahead and I could see things, good things, encouraging things about what God is going to be doing with me and in my life, I also know from experience that there's going to be a lot of heartache out there. And, and you know what? I don't want to know. <laughs> I'd rather be content with where I am today and trust him for the future. When uh, my mother was very, very sick, um, she had leukemia, and she was dying, and she was in a hospital in Houston. And um, I went down um, for a weekend, and my mom and dad were living there, and she was getting treatments at MD Anderson. And um, my parents didn't seem to have a lot of information. And I said, you know what, I, I want to meet with this doctor. I want to find out. So I said, is it all right with you guys if I just go, you know, get an appointment, just meet with him for a few minutes? Sure, sure, whatever, you know. So I went to see him, and I sat down with the doctor, and I looked him straight in the eye, and I said, I want to know what's going, you know, you're doing a lot of these experimental things. What's going on with my mom? And he said, she has about a month to live. What? A few weeks? Yes. I said, do my parents know this? He said, no. I said, why haven't you told them? And he said, they don't want to know. I said, of course they want to know. So I went back to the room, and I didn't know what to say. And my parents said, so how did what the doctor say? All smiles. And I was like, well, you know. He, and I made something up. I don't even remember what. But I didn't tell him what I knew because I didn't know if I should. And so I, I called my uncle, my mother's brother, and I asked him, and he said, you definitely should tell them. They should be ready to, repa- to, to prepare for all of this. And then I called my sister, and she said, absolutely not. Do not say one word to them. And I was just in this agony. So finally, that night, um, I went back to the room and spent the, the evening with them. And then at night, my dad and I went back to their hotel. My mom was at the hospital. And so I, I said to Dad, so if you, would want, if you wanted to know... I mean, if, if you could know, would you want to know what's going to happen, how long mom's going to be alive? He said, absolutely not. And I said, okay, that's my answer. <laughs> and I didn't tell him. Why? Because sometimes when we look at the future, it's scary. Well, think of Habakkuk. He had just been shown this fierce army from out of nowhere coming in and destroying the country and taking 
all of the, well, many of the people off as hostages to live in some foreign place. Horrific stuff. And what was his reaction? He was scared. And who can blame him from what he saw? He's shown him what's come down the pike. Well, what's he afraid of? Well, he, he talks about this. And, and the next verse is from 3 to, I think it's 15. He, he gives his, he talks about the revelation that God has already given him. Okay? Now, the thing we need to know when we're looking at any kind of prophecy like this is that all prophecy, just about all prophecy in the Bible, is written in Hebraic poetry. And it's a form of literature. Um, and what, what that means is not that it rhymes, like we would think of poetry, but it's in, it, everything is written in couplets, two, two senses that are parallel in meaning. They're synonymous. Sometimes, though, the, the, the second one actually says the opposite of the first, but usually when you see it, they, are, are, um, they mean the same thing. Um, but the, and the second usually enhances or somehow further explains what that first statement is. So here's an example, Psalm 78.1. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Now, if you take a look at this, you can see there are two parallel things. Listen is repeated by incline your ears to my instruction, to the words of my mouth. See how they repeat each other? That's what Hebrew poetry does. And so we're going to be looking at Habakkuk's, um, what, what, what his, his revelation was that God showed him, but they're in groups of couplets. And so you'll notice that you'll see two side by side because one explains the other. All right, so let's take a look at verse 3. God comes out from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now, the reason why these are, you know, the Holy One and God, of course, and then you've got Teman and Mount Paran, both of those are alternate names for Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is where God came from heaven and met with the Israelite people. It was their first touchstone of, that, of their experience with God after they left Egypt. And then he came from Mount Sinai and moved forward from there. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor covered the heavens. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hill collapsed. But he marches on forever. Now, of course, you can see this overriding theme of this first group of couplets is about the magnificence, the glory of God. Um, and when Habakkuk is seeing God at his work, that's the thing that strikes him. Um, and he compares it to like looking at the sun. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to look at the sun. One time we were having an eclipse when I was little and everybody was talking about, don't look at the sun, don't look at the sun because you'll go blind. And so I had my little pinhole thing and I was going to do what the teacher said. But my sister didn't really understand quite. She was pretty little, probably first or second grade. And so when the eclipse was going on and I was out there with my pinhole thing, she came out with a blanket over her head and she went running and said, Julie, don't look at the sun, don't look at the sun. She thought, I don't know, she thought like the sun is suddenly poisoning the air around me or something. She didn't get it, poor little thing. I have to admit, though, the next morning when I w- woke up, I was kind of scared to open my eyes because had I gone blind or not. The sun is 93 million miles away, but yet it's, and it works. It's a wonderful work. It's a thing that keeps life on earth going, right? We wouldn't live without the sun. It gives us warmth. It gives us light. It, it keeps the earth going. But at the same time, to look at it, 
can blind you permanently. And you can't really look at it for so long when it's out there in the bright sky. It's the glory of it is just is blinding and we can't. That's what Habakkuk was comparing God to, his glory, where he could see God at work, but the glory of it was so strong he couldn't even look hard at it. So what did he see in that first group, uh, that first prophecy? Is that God came in overwhelming glory. Well, this would have been something that harkened back to the Hebrew experience with God, back to, and you saw the mention of, those two names from Mount Sinai. In Deuteronomy 33.2, it says this, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. Exact same in, in imagery. But that book, Deuteronomy, was written way before Habakkuk ever came around. That was back when the Israelites were first leaving and going into the Promised Land. That same imagery is there, though. God descending from the mountain and his glory evident. And Habakkuk's audience would definitely have recognized this as a reference to their past history with God. God has done it before. They would have seen that. Okay, so after these general statements of glory, now he gets more specific in the next set of couplets. He says this, I saw the tents of Cushion under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Did the Lord rage against the rivers or was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made bare. Your rods of chastisement were sworn. Now we start to get to real specific action that God had done. Um, Habakkuk's readers and listeners would have known that he's referring to acts of God. And I really think, and now some scholars might disagree with me, but they're wrong. <laughs> but I really think this is talking, just, just kidding for those on the tape. I do have a sense of humor. But anyway, <laughs> I respect them. But um, you see these two references. One is Cushan and one is Midian. Well, both of those armies, those invading armies, are found in the book of Judges. Cushan was the very first army to be used by God to go in and punish the Israelites because they had fallen away from him. They were the first of the oppressors of Israel. And, the, and, uh, and I, I think that further because Cushan's an unusual name because it's usually, it, it's Cush is what they usually say, so there's some discrepancy. But anyway, did the Lord rage against the rivers or was your anger against the rivers? In Judges, Cushion is called the Ar- that they were from the Aram of two rivers, which is what makes me think that that's probably what it is. Midian, you might recognize from the story of Gideon, who came at two press, and there were so many, they were like locusts. They would come in and take over and steal the crops, and Gideon was called um, to bring Israel against them, and, and God rescued them from there. So what did Habakkuk really see when he looked at this second set of couplets? That he saw, while inflicting punishment for sin with those opposing armies, at the same time, or at the end, God rescued his people from their oppressors. In both instances, in both Cushion and Midian, God came and rescued them. So the very problem that Habakkuk was facing as he was looking at this thing, with this punishing invasion by a foreign power, he was also seeing God providing salvation from the oppression for, of his people. He'd done it before, and he'll do it again. 
You see the pattern that's going on here? He's hearkening back to the history. He's showing what happens in the future and trusting that God is still the same God that he was back then, that he was for Habakkuk and is today. Okay, so then the third group of of, uh, couplets goes like this. You cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of waters swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood still in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spears. Um, Most likely, this whole idea of the sun standing still would have been Joshua and uh, his battle as they went in to take the promised land. Um, But in any case, Deuteronomy gives us some insight again. This is Deuteronomy back when they were entering the promised land. And because what it does is it talks about the Lord taking his weapons and raising them high and using them for the salvation of his people to defeat the enemy. It says this, uh, God, uh, oh, I'm sorry, indeed, I lift my hand to heaven and say as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will pay those who hate me. Uh, repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword will devour flesh. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. So he has his weapons, he has his power, and he's used those to punish the enemy and give salvation to his people. And God will do it again. We've seen three sets of verses here. Uh, there's one more. There's a fourth set, and then we'll take a look at that now. Uh, in wrath, you strode through the earth, and in anger, you, you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot, and with his own spear, you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though they were about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You know, in these pictures, in this set, just briefly, uh, it shows God as striding through the earth, bringing wrath. They use the metaphor of beating or crushing wheat. Now, in, in ancient times, there were three different methods usually used. One is a flail, which is a a long rod at the end of which, uh, attached with a very loose hinge, uh, would be a a thicker, shorter rod. They'd use that to to bring down and beat on the wheat. They would use animals to walk over the wheat and and crush that there to to separate the, the husk from the grain itself. Then they would winnow it and, and get rid of that, that chaff. And then the other way would be uh, a large rock as shown that they would, they would carve and tailor a certain way and just roll continually over the wheat. Uh, and it's not just his wrath being poured out, but he says here he's coming to deliver his people. It gets very personal and describes that, describes not just shaking the earth, not just the sun and moon standing still, but coming to deliver his people and dealing with their enemies. And that has many historical references to, as God delivered his people time and again, right through uh, Exodus on up to the time of Habakkuk. 
Well, we don't have time to go into further details on that. But what Habakkuk says next is the reaction then to all of this that he has seen. And he says, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Just like in the beginning of this chapter, Habakkuk says, I'm afraid. This is too awesome to look at. It's also frightening to realize God's serious. There's going to be an army that's going to come and invade our land, destroying, pillaging, killing. And he, um, he, he knows that's the God that's coming, the God of the past. And he wants that. He says... Uh, I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on us. And then has this message of hope. So he's determined to do two things in light of that. Number one, wait patiently. And he says, renew them in our day. And that's a reference from the first part of this chapter where he says, renew these great works that you do in our day. I know God's coming, and I know God is going to be that God that he was in the past, though it might not be pleasant. Patiently waiting is one of the hardest things to do. David gives us a little bit more insight into this with a similar type passage from Psalm 37. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed. But those who hope will inherit the land. Hope. It's the same thing Habakkuk turns to at the end of this chapter. Hope in God's promise. That's what Habakkuk had. And if you remember, we talked in the um, uh, earlier in Habakkuk about The righteous shall live by faith, that great statement that appears in Habakkuk. And then in three other places, it's picked up and repeated in the New Testament. So Habakkuk had this faith. And that faith requires waiting on God because God is going to act as he's acted in the past, but he acts on his timetable and with his actions. The second thing Habakkuk was determined to do was take joy in the Lord. That's a real curious one. In light of your nation being invaded by an army. But note that Habakkuk's not talking about inconvenience. He's talking about a decimation of Israel. You know, Israel is an agricultural-based society. They used the figs that he referenced, the grapes and the olives, And all those crops grown in the field and the sheep and the cattle, they used those for buying and selling. That was their economy. So he's saying, even if our economy is completely wiped out, we have nothing, I will take joy in the Lord. Now, there's about 
60 people in this room that know a lot more about economics than I do. <laughs> but in a very rough way, what I think is that our economy here in America is built on currency that we trade for goods and services, basically. The scenario Habakkuk is outlining is if we were facing a situation of 90 or 90 percent, 90 or 95 percent unemployment. That is, nobody was willing to pay for our services. And all of our goods were taken away. All the things we had saved up to tide us over in hard times were taken away. Well, that's the case for Israel here. No animals in the pens. No crops coming in from the field. Nothing. Even in the face of that, Habakkuk is determined to take joy in the Lord. It's not a feeling for him. He's not being happy in the Lord. He's taking joy in the Lord. It's a decision. It's a value judgment. We make value judgments all the time. I saw an article in the Huffington Post back in January. It's from uh, Olathe, Kansas. ABC 15 says that a man woke up last Friday to find his home engulfed in flames. Seeing there was no one else inside the house, the man did the only sensible thing and made, it, made a safe and quick exit. But once outside hit the premises, he decided to make one last heroic trip back into the fire in order to save his beloved Xbox game. There's no word on whether the machine was a current-gen current Xbox One or the older Xbox 360 model. In the end, the man suffered smoke inhalation, but did get the console out undamaged. <laughs> We're capable of sacrificing everything for what we consider to be important. We make those judgments all the time. Habakkuk says that having God Taking joy in the Lord for him was the most important thing. He puts his emphasis on this by that declaration at the end of the chapter that we've already read. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. There's more we could say about Habakkuk's prayer here, but we need to talk about what all this means to us and answer the so what question. So what do we do with this, with Habakkuk's reaction, with what he said? How should we apply it to our lives today? Well, I think what Habakkuk is talking about here and what Steve just expressed is the but if not kind of faith. Habakkuk, he expressed his faith in God, trust in God, even when what he could see did not inspire confidence. He was responding with what but if not kind of faith. Well, what am I talking about here? Well, there's lots of if statements in the Bible. Um, here's one in Second Chronicles. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. That was something that was a big verse back at the bicentennial in the 70s. And people said, if we pray, if we do these things, that God will spiritually heal our land. Here's another if. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. If. If you believe, Matthew says in another place, 
you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. If. If I do this, then I can expect that. Right? Don't we look at those statements as that kind of a thing, a promises from God? But what happens if not? What if you are humble and you pray and you seek and you turn, but your nation still moves toward ruin? Well, that's what happened to Habakkuk. What if you believe with every ounce of who you are that God is going to heal your mother or your child from whatever illness this thing is, and then they die anyway? What do you do with that? What, would, what, do you, what if you believe in the character and the promises of God and you're faithful to do the if, and then God doesn't pull through on his end? It happens. I'll bet you if I asked any of you if that's happened to you, almost every person will raise their hand. It happens. So what do you do with that? Well, I want to give you an example of what to do with that because God's answer to Habakkuk's prayer was in the Babylonians. The Babylonians came in, they decimated the land, just like in the the vision that he gave Habakkuk, and they took a great deal of people off into exile and repopulated the surrounding countries. Well, there was one group of of men that were especially had a lot of potential and and, and showed uh, great leadership that they took to Babylon itself and that they made them, they were starting to train them and they were going to be serving within the king's court. Um, You probably have heard of them before. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So there they were. And and they served faithfully and they, they trusted God and they did good things. But at one point, King Nebuchadnezzar had a statue built. It was an image of gold, a kind of unifying God for all the foreigners that had repopulated the land. You see, it wasn't any big deal to foreigners, most foreigners, pagan nations, to add another God to the list. They already had a ton of gods. So if one more comes along, sure, put them on there. But to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it was devastating command because they had a God who said, you will worship me only. So they didn't have the option of worshiping this new God. And so they didn't. And what did Nebuchadnezzar do? He called them, found, found out about them, and he, he was furious that anybody would go against him. And he warned them of the consequences of their noncompliance. This is what he said. If you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Pretty arrogant statement. But they were not intimidated. This is what they told him back. O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, even if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. If not, we're going to worship them anyway. Why? Yes, the circumstances were devastating. The fiery furnace was built. It was there, and it was ready to be used. And they refused to worship. Why? Because we have more than just the circumstances we can see. We know who God is. We have more. We know that God is a God of salvation, and he will deliver. 
Now, sometimes he delivers from the circumstance. He got Noah into an ark before the floods came. Um, Isaac was on the altar and his father with a knife over his head when God provided a ram and delivered him out from that circumstance. Peter was delivered out of prison um, and, and, uh, and God released him so he could go on. So sometimes he does deliver from the threatening circumstance. Sometimes, though, and we're not going to like this one as much, sometimes he delivers through the circumstance. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had to actually go into the fire and experience that. And I'm sure those moments as they were headed toward the door were not pleasant for them because they weren't sure what God was going to do, but they had to go through the fire to be delivered. Jesus had to go through the agony of the cross and then was raised from the dead. So sometimes he delivers from, sometimes he delivers through, and sometimes he delivers later. You know, you have the story of Paul who had this thorn in the flesh he talks about in 2 Corinthians. And he talks about that he prayed that God would take it away, take it away. We don't know what it was. It could have been some kind of a physical ailment. Some people theorize that maybe his eyes were bad. Um, Some people theorize it was a person in his life that drove him crazy. It could have been any of those things. He doesn't say. But the point of it is, is that God did not deliver him. He said, no, through your weakness, that's when I'm strong. And Paul said, okay, I'm good with that. So he was delivered after that. Uh, He took it to his grave. But then, of course, did not raise from the dead with that on him anymore. Hebrews 11, at the very end, there's all these people who had lived lives of faith, but this is what it says at the end. Others were tortured. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Now he's talking about in their life on earth. And he says, because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. God, in working his, his purposes for salvation for the whole world, allowed some to suffer and die for their faith. It's still happening today. Sometimes he delivers later. You know, at the beginning of the chapter, chapter 11 in Hebrews, the writer says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. Did you notice that? Faith is believing in what you haven't seen, yet you know to be true. And even when you can see, what you can see tells you something different. When we're living in the land of if not, and it happens, We can choose to trust in who he is even when what we see around us gives us a total opposite impression. And the Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You know, when my mom finally died, it was one of the most faith-challenging years of my life because 
I knew he was going to take her. I had gotten warning from the doctor, unlike my parents. But I, I knew it was happening, and I knew she was dying. And in some small way, I was okay with that, understanding he was sovereign. He had his, her life in his hand. But what really bothered me was in my grief, I cried out to him. I, was, I just was crushed beyond anything that I'd ever gone through before. And I waited for God to show himself to me, to somehow comfort me, to be there for me. And you know what I got? Nothing. Silence from God. And this went on for quite some time. I looked for signs of his presence at work. He was silent. And I started to wonder, did he even exist? After I'd been going through all of that and he hadn't even reached out to me. But eventually, what I had to come to was this. I had to look past my circumstance, past the grief that I was going through, to remember who God is outside of the circumstances. Habakkuk had the same experience. His circumstances, what he saw was going to be happening, was going to be overwhelming. And here's a heads up. He saw this about 20 years before God actually brought it to pass. Then it was another 70 years that the people were in exile, and finally the end of 70 years, so 90 years after he got this revelation, finally God came and rescued. You think Habakkuk was alive then? I doubt it. He never saw it come to pass in real life. Those circumstances were overwhelming. But Habakkuk, as evidenced by the end of his book, he chose to trust in God's character instead. When we make the choice to remember who God is, we can worship with joy, like he says, in spite of what we see. And we can walk as sure-footed as a deer in high places. Well, as we close out the book of Habakkuk, just wanted to come back and touch base with uh, the whole book summary. We had started, and I had talked about the fact that Habakkuk had questions, problems. He sought God. He stayed engaged. In chapter 2, God revealed himself to Habakkuk. Habakkuk's perspective was changed, and he responded with faith. We have that same cycle in our lives. Often God chooses to shake us up a little bit or let those opportunities where we're shaken up to to encourage us to engage with him, to seek him out. And then he reveals himself to us. We understand to a greater degree his character. We change our perspective because of that. Now we understand God in a deeper way and we respond in faith, believing him. Believing him, being able, knowing we can trust him in this area of our lives, trust him with this person or thing. Uh, and what God's hope is, as we experience this deeper relationship with him, that that will encourage us to seek him more, to engage with him more. And that cycle then keeps moving as our relationship grows with the Lord and as we uh, mature in him. He'll still bring in those questions or problems now and again to, to keep us moving. But that's the cycle he wants for us. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you so much for Habakkuk and uh, what it says, what it means. Um, we want to be people that are able to value you appropriately in our lives and see past the difficulties of our lives and trust and worship you. In your name, amen. 
Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.